Thank you for tuning in to The Way Podcast, a work of Scattered Abroad which is overseen by the East Hill Church of Christ in Pulaski, Tennessee. You can find our website at scatteredabroad.org. In this podcast, we seek to showcase the way that God wants us to live by looking at what is written in His Word. The Bible says God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is That Way. Here is your host, Houston Welch. Welcome back to The Way Podcast. I'm your host, Houston Welch. And as we continue our uh, study of Jesus in the Old Testament, it's important for us to look at the very first place that we find a prophecy of Jesus. Now, it's not the very first place that we that we read about Jesus. As we discussed before um, in introducing this discussion, that at least for myself and from my uh, own understanding, it is Jesus that, that spoke with Adam and Eve in the garden. It was Jesus that was present with Adam and Eve in the garden whenever uh, Adam and Eve would speak and commune with God. We also, I believe that Jesus is found in the first chapter of Genesis. Whenever God said, let there be light, well, according to John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It also, the Hebrews writer also says uh, that he upholds all things by the word of his power. So I believe that this is not the first place that we read about Jesus, but it is, no doubt, the first prophecy of Jesus. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, whenever uh, the author, Moses, was writing about um, God's punishment uh, towards the woman as well as his punishment towards uh, toward the the serpent so a little bit of background for anybody who perhaps is not familiar with the account at least the the fall of man began by the serpent beguiling eve deceiving eve into taking of the only plant, the only uh, fruit that is being from the fruit, uh, the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the only fruit in the garden which God prohibited man and woman to eat. Well, the serpent deceived her into taking of that fruit. She ate it, and she gave to her husband also, and then immediately. The Bible says their eyes were open. They realized they were naked, and so they took fig leaves and put over themselves. And then, whenever God came uh, to speak with them, He asked Adam, "Where are you?" Now, of course, God knew, but He wanted Adam to come forward. Well, Adam did come forward, and he confessed that he didn't immediately present himself to God because he knew that he was naked. And then God asked him, Who told you that you were naked? And then Adam immediately begins blaming his wife, which perhaps she was partially to blame. Now, Adam should not have taken the fruit either, but he blamed his wife nonetheless. 
Well, she didn't take responsibility either, and she blamed the serpent. And again, perhaps the serpent is guilty as well. But not all of the guilt is placed upon the woman, and not all of the guilt is placed upon the serpent. There's a lesson there for us in that the devil doesn't make us do it. Yes, he tempts us, but he does not force us to sin. We are just as guilty of our own volition. Well, in verse 13, uh, verse 14, The Lord said unto the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, upon your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And then he's spoken to the woman of her curse, and then he's spoken to the man of his curse. But what we're going to focus on is verse 15. The very first prophecy about Jesus. Now there are a few things that that, um, I want us to do. I want us to first look at a few interpretations which would be or are blatantly wrong. One would be the which interested me. First and uh, first and foremost, that of the Jews, because I've always wondered, well, what did, how did the Jews interpret this passage? Whenever, at least from a Christian's lens, it is so clearly speaking about Jesus. Now, yes, that's partially because we have always studied it uh, from that perspective. It was first taught to us from that perspective, at least. The majority of Christians, especially in the United States, were taught that Genesis 3.15, the very first time that they ever heard a lesson or anybody speak about Genesis 3.15, it was always about Jesus. Most of us have never heard it any other way. So I wondered, what? how did the Jews interpret that? How did the Jews interpret that a millennium ago? Uh, before Jesus, and how do they view it, of course, today? Well, it seems that, at least today, uh, they hold a very literal view of the text, that this is literally a serpent, a snake, that used to walk on at least its hind legs, perhaps on all fours. That we don't know, but we do know that it spoke to Eve and that it didn't seem to catch her off guard. Well, how do we know that this is talking about the devil, which poses the next question? Because that would lead us into viewing it in light of Jesus. If it was talking about, if it was in fact the devil that deceived Eve and not just some uh, snake by accident, then we of course can interpret this to be talking about Jesus. 
the seed of woman being Jesus. Well, in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, Paul says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, or shall tread Satan under your feet shortly. You perhaps, if you are in the southern United States of America, you maybe have seen uh, the uh, rattlesnake coiled up. It's a yellow flag with a rattlesnake coiled up, and the uh, wording under it is, Don't tread on me. Don't run over me. Well, that's quite frankly exactly what Jesus or God is doing to the devil, is doing to that old snake. Now, it's interesting that Paul makes this parallel that the God of peace will bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Now, he's, he's speaking to Christians, but what are Christians but the body of Christ? And who is going to crush the head of Satan? Jesus himself. So that's where Paul is making the reference He's speaking to the Christians as the body of Jesus, as Jesus, that the God of peace will bruise Satan, will crush Satan's head under your feet shortly, just like he prophesied would happen, Genesis chapter 3, 15. Now, there's other um, parallels whenever he mentions the seed of the devil. And essentially that there's going to be this war between uh, the seed of woman and the seed of devil through uh, the seed of the devil throughout many generations. A few more passages to look at in regards to this. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 33. Matthew writes, Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint um, and uh, Anais and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, faith. And then he continues on that they are the child of their father, the devil. John also records this in John chapter 8. John 8 and verse 44, a similar writing. You, Jesus speaking, are of your father, the devil. The lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. In 1 John 3 and verse 8, uh, John there is contrasting the children of God versus the children of the devil. And so the seed of the serpent are the wicked in the earth. Just as the scribes and the Pharisees, the hypocrites, and those that Jesus was speaking to, calling them uh, the children of the devil. Now, why do the Jews, or how do they get around this speaking about Jesus? Because in most translations... It reads, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So it's talking about a singular. 
And the Jews' interpretation of it is that it's simply mankind, the seed of woman being man itself. And whenever we view it at face value, yes, there is some animosity between man and serpents. But I would say that I'm no more um, afraid or angry, so to speak, at snakes as I am spiders. Or perhaps even more so, because uh, typically you can see a snake uh, far better than you can a spider. And so it can't just be uh, talking about snakes in general. And also, as we've noticed the pronoun, it can't be just talking about mankind in general. It has to be talking about specific people. Well, if it is talking about specific people, why did God curse snakes in the way that he did? I heard one commentator note it like this. Take a man catching the murder of his son. And he, the murder killed his son with a knife. Well, what is the first thing that that man or that father is going to do? If he's a God-fearing man and he's not seeking retaliation, the first thing that he does out of his anger is he's going to snap that knife. He's going to do away with it. Break it apart. That's what God did. In his righteous indignation he broke the snake he broke the weapon that the devil used to deceive man but yet it's still a curse on the devil that he was going to be bruised now I want us to look at the pronouns used I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I believe in the Hebrew language they did not use pronouns, at least in my understanding. Somebody who has a better understanding of the Hebrew language may can correct me on that. But I have somewhat of a small understanding, at least a better understanding of the Greek language. And the Old Testament, the most accurate, at least from my understanding, the most accurate um, ancient translation that we have is the Greek Septuagint, even better than our oldest Hebrew writings. The Old Testament in the Greek language, the LXX, which was translated from the original Hebrew into the Greek language, the Koine Greek, the common Greek of that time, around 200 B.C., is, in my opinion, our best translation of the Old Testament. And in Genesis 3.15... It uses the two pronouns, the masculine pronouns, he and his, in both of their places. Does not mention anything about a she. Doesn't mention anything about a it. The Greek language had the feminine pronouns and the neutral pronouns. But rather, they translated it as he. Also, not plural but singular. 
talking about one seed, one individual was going to bruise or crush the head of Satan. There's also, whenever I was um, viewing uh, this, uh, this text, this passage, this prophecy, and studying it uh, a little bit, I come across the Catholic interpretation. Now, I don't know if all Catholics believe that this pro- uh, prophecy means this, but at least a few Catholics, if not many, believe that this is not a prophecy of Jesus, but rather that it's a prophecy of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And if you're familiar with uh, Catholic doctrine and Catholicism, you know that they almost seemingly place Mary uh, above Jesus, even though he is the one, he is the King of Kings, he is the Lord of Lords, he is God incarnate, God in the flesh, he is the one who redeemed us of our sins, who saved us and died for us. They, for whatever reason, place Mary above him. Yes, Jesus revered his mother, and he respected his mother, and he was even obedient to his mother. But Jesus is still, and he died a man, and he was God in the flesh, and he is the King of kings. Jesus is above all. There is no being except the Father above him. This prophecy is not talking about, as we've mentioned, the pronouns are talking about Jesus. They're both masculine in both places. The only way to reasonably approach this passage, this prophecy, is that it is, of course, talking about him. Now, I want us to look at the serpent, the antagonist of this account. Well, as we've noticed in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20, I don't believe that Satan has yet been crushed. I don't believe that Satan has yet been destroyed. And, in fact, whenever we read in Revelation, it seems that he is still active. First Peter chapter 5, Peter tells us that the devil, that Satan, is as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. The devil is certainly still active. And even though Jesus did break the bondage of sin and death, he did provide a way uh, free from sin so that we no longer have to die condemned but rather that we can have hope for an eternity with God and be restored with him, the devil is still present, that he's not altogether destroyed, that Jesus hasn't crushed his head yet. But, as many of the New Testament authors tell us, it is soon going to happen. Now, there's one final part, and though we didn't discuss Jesus much during this, I want us to notice the need for the seed, the need for Jesus. Eve sinned. Adam sinned as well. Both of them are equally to blame. Both of them are guilty of their own sin. 
not for the others, but for their own. We cannot blame them for the sin of mankind. And here's the reason why. I heard an old wise preacher say it this way. Had it not been Adam, it would have been me. I'm thankful to Jesus because I would have sinned just like our father Adam did. We can't say otherwise. God has blessed us with free will, but it has also given us the option to choose either to be obedient to him or to disregard his will altogether. And thankfully, God sent his son, and he prophesied it in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. There we find Jesus in the Old Testament, the very first prophecy of him, and we see the wisdom of God on display. We appreciate you for staying tuned in thus far. We hope that you've been edified. We hope that you've been encouraged. Um, please go check out some of our uh, sistering podcasts, as we always admonish you to do so. There's a lot of good material on those. Um, and if you would, please uh, share this with a friend. Share the podcast with a friend. Share uh, the information about Scattered Abroad. Uh, uh, help get us out there. We do appreciate you for, for tuning in and listening to us. Um, we do love you, and have a good day.